On this stellar episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1982 in issues 57 and 58. Bert Bruce reveals info on his heartthrob, Carolyn Monroe. Flynn Hendricks fills us in on what happened in the world of professional wrestling in 1982. Lou, Rich, and Max reveal more about John Carpenter's The Thing. Main Man Jamie reminisces about the comic books that were available in 1982. Plus, sci-fi fan clubs, and more on this episode of... Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. MetrothamCon is May 12th through 14th. Chattanooga, Tennessee. We love MetrothamCon. We've been there before. Multimedia convention has a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's a multi-fan con. They have different uh different genres TV shows that they cover. Uh, but this year that they're, they're gonna have Jonathan Frakes. And the theme this year for MetrothamCon is the '90s. A lot of guests that revolve around the '90s. We know that there's gonna be Walter Jones from Power Rangers. Edward Furlong from Terminator 2, Kevin Sorbo from Hercules, Gigi Edgeley from Farscape. The list goes on and on, but I love it because it's a fan-run convention that's really well-organized and very interactive. Yeah, we had a lot of fun at that one before. And pretty much the only Star Wars convention in North America this year, we're talking about none other than the Imperial Commissary Collectors Convention. The ICCC, Nashville, Tennessee. May 27th and 28th. They do a unique thing. Friday, it's for VIP only. Then Saturday and Sunday is the general public. If you go there for the VIP only day, it's amazing because you get first dibs at all the amazing collectibles. Toys, action figures, everything. IC is by far my favorite Star Wars convention. I like it better than Celebration. It's a major con for Star Wars collectors, and they also have a, a, a great number of guests this year, too, just as, as always. The Emperor's returning. Ian McDermott. He loves coming here to Middle Tennessee. They're going to have a carnival at nighttime this year, a parade. If you are a fan of Star Wars, do not miss ICCC. And once again, Dragon Con invited us back. What can we say about Dragon Con that hasn't been said already? 
It's the ultimate con. It's absolutely incredible. Labor Day weekend. If you're planning on going, do what we do. Start planning early. Start building your costumes early. Start saving your money early. We look forward to seeing all of our listeners at DragonCon. Starlog Magazine, issue number 57, cover date, April 1982. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Want to hear some news? This is a series of blurbs that's featured in rapid succession under the log entries. Jerry Goldsmith will score United Artists' Secret of Nim. The Don Bluth production scheduled for a July release. Paul Williams will supply lyrics. John Williams has decided to stay with the Boston Pops for at least two more seasons. Dino De Laurentiis still claims to have Dune ready to roll under director David Lynch this year. George Lucas told Variety that he is considering filming Raiders of the Lost Ark 2 in China. Production isn't expected to start until late this year or early next year. Superman 3 has received tax shelter money and is in pre-production in England. John Carpenter's next production will be Firestarter, according to Variety, but that may change. All right, constant Starlog listeners and readers and Starpodlog hermanos, I need you to listen up. This one time, this one's very important to me. I want to thank Naren Kavura. I lobbied hard to do this review. Starlog issue 57. We're going to talk about our mystery article. The year is 1973. A young Burt Bruce, a.k.a. Bruce Burtner, is told by his father, we're going to the 49er drive-in movie. We're going to see The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Now, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad is noted because it's a Harryhausen classic. We love him. I don't even know who played Sinbad. I didn't care. But it was a pre-Doctor Who starring Tom Baker as the evil vizier. But the most important person in this film, the one who would go on to define my puberty, the one who uh, meant the most to me was Carolyn Monroe as the slave Margiana. And she was fantastic. The outfit she wore, I can only invite you to watch the film again if you've forgotten it. Look up the article, read the article, see what it glorious person she is briefly the starlog article is promoting the last horror film uh starring uh miss monroe as Jana bates it's directed by her then husband who uh i will not even dignify by naming she was married to this uh guy from 1970 till about 1982 he was basically i think trying to use her her fame and beauty to uh, launch his own career but the less said about him the better so we'll move on uh, the article uh, basically details that they filmed uh, the last horror film at Cannes, the film festival, and mostly night shoots. And it concerns Victor Spinell as a creepy guy who's trying to get Miss Monroe to star in his film. Meanwhile, all of her uh, confederates start dying off. Yawn. I've seen the film. Not that great. So many more things to talk about about Carolyn Monroe, and we're going to do it. So she was born in January of 1949. She's a lovely young lady. She was the youngest child. Her dad was a lawyer, mother a housewife. She wanted to do art. She said art was her love, and she went to art school, but she wasn't very good at it. Then she had a friend at college who was a photographer, and he took pictures of her. He sent them to uh, a big newspaper in London, and the fashion photographer, David Bailey, was conducting a photo contest, and Monroe's picture won. So this led to uh, 
advertisement work in both Vogue magazine as well as like the Daily Mail newspaper and print work and TV advertisements. She uh, then got bit parts in such movies as Casino Royale and Where's Jack? And then Paramount came calling the movie studio and she was signed up for a one-year contract. She played Richard Widmark's daughter in a comedy western called A Talent for Loving in 1969. She's really noted as playing Victoria Regina Fibes in both The Abominable Dr. Fibes and Dr. Fibes Rises Again, which were filmed in 1971 and 72. Of course, they starred Vincent Price. Now, this is what's really interesting. Hammer Films had never signed any actress to a film contract, but Sir James Carrara spotted Monroe on a Lamb's Navy rum poster, and he asked his assistant to screen test her. So she was promptly signed as a one-year contract, and her first Hammer films proved to be a turning point in her career. It was during the making of Dracula After Death, also A.D. 1972, and Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter in 1974 that she decided she was a full-fledged actress. Now, what's interesting is Brian Clemens was the director. He wanted someone who was like a Raquel Welch, a redhead, to play the uh, actress in Captain Kronos. Well, uh, she was so good that, again, Hammer signed her up, and Clemens uh, helped her to be cast in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad in 1973. This is her direct quote. She said, I got the part. I had been signed by Hammer for one year for a contract, out of which I did Two films, one being Dracula, A.D. 1972, and the second one being Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, which kind of would come full circle to Sinbad. It was written and directed by Brian Clemens, who wrote the screenplay for The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. So I was lucky enough to be chosen for Captain Kronos, and they were searching for somebody to do Sinbad, and they wanted a big name, somebody American or well-known, but Brian said no. He kept lobbying Charles Schneer and Ray Harryhausen, saying, I think you should come and look at the rushes and see what you think, because I think she's right. So they said no, but eventually Brian persuaded them to do that, and they saw the rushes, and that was how I got the part. So it was lovely, like work out of work. I was very lucky to have done that. And that's how she got the golden voyage of Sinbad. But I had seen her in uh, Captain Kronos as well as uh, Dracula AD 1972. I was pretty precocious kid. Monroe has the distinction of also turning down lead female roles in Hammer's Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, 1971, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell in 1974, and The Unmade Vampirella. They never did make a Vampirella at Hammer because they required nudity. She also turned down roles in Force 10 from Navarone in 1978, and The World is Full of Married Men in 1979, as they also required nudity. I would uh, harken back to her growing up years. She went to a convent, and so I think her religious upbringing probably required that she not do nudity in her own moral code, which is, to be honest, I think it was a great career choice for her because she didn't have a uh, bimbo persona. She was kind of classy, and uh, it went and led on to other things. She was noted also she turned down the role of Ursa in the uh, second Superman uh, sequel superman 2 the three uh villains from the phantom zone general zod and her and the other guy uh she could have played ursa and i think the actress they got to play ursa was actually the better choice because it would be hard for me to imagine ursa taking on lois lane and being mean to her as played by carolyn monroe she's 
just too classy and too sweet. But she turned down Superman because she played Naomi in The Spy Who Loved Me, the James Bond, Roger Moore picture. I think she suffered because she didn't get much screen time. She played a helicopter pilot, and she was just in it uh, not as much as she should have been. She should have been a lead actress in a Bond film. I would have put her, and I'm not picking on the girl who played Octopussy, but I would have put her in Octopussy as the lead role. Maude Adams, great actress, love her, but Carolyn Monroe could have played the hell out of a Bond female. And as it is, she only got a brief amount of time in The Spy Who Loved Me, which, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. She also should have been Vampirella. They should have not required nudity. If you go back to the Vampirella comics, you will see that oftentimes that's her face. If you look at the Vampirella uh, comics of the early 70s, they directly used her uh, visage, and that's uh, that's her face in a lot of those comics. Anyway, uh, what could have been, she also went on to play Stella Starr in Star Crash. In 1976, she did At the Earth's Core with Peter Cushing and Doug McClure. She appeared also as Tammy, a nursing employee of a sinister health farm in The Angels of Death, an episode of the TV series The New Avengers that featured also rising stars Pamela Stevenson and Lindsay Duncan. So I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not, but in 1992 or 93, I met young Carolyn Monroe. She is 13 years my senior, but she was phenomenal. I think she had just remarried and had a baby at that time. But there was a chiller convention in Secaucus, New Jersey, and she was brilliant. She was classy and gracious. I still own a picture of myself with her. Uh, she's signing autographs, and uh, I'm next to her and my young 29-year-old self. Obviously, I had no shot at it. I mean, she was uh, polite and pleasant to all our fans and treated us with uh, much respect. I'm a lifelong fan. Even at the tender age of 73, I guess she's single now, but uh, she is gorgeous. Even at this late age, she's another, again, she could have been, if she'd really pursued it, she could have been her own Elvira mistress of the dark if she'd pursued that type of a career because she is that phenomenal. And just, you can't meet a nicer person. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, all of her films now. We're just going to go over uh, all the films she appeared in. 1966, she did Smoke Over London, bit part. 1967, Casino Royale, again, she played a guard goal. Girl. 1968, Joanna. 1969, The Comedy Wears Jack and a Talent for Loving. 1971, On the Buses. And then also the abominable Dr. Fibes. Then she did Mutiny on the Buses. I'm sure that's a classic. And then Dracula, A.D. 1972. And uh, Dr. Fibes rises again. Of course, 1973 was The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And then Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. A film in 1975 called I Don't Want to Be Born. She played Mandy Gregory. And then in At the Earth's Core, I mean, of course, 77, she played this in The Spy Who Loved Me. And then 78 was Star Crash, which should have been her franchise film. She played Stella Star. And unfortunately, the plot just wasn't that good. But the film looked great. It could have been another Barbarella had they marketed it a little more correctly and the script was better. 1980, she was in Maniac. 1982, the last horror film, less said the better. 1984, don't open till Christmas. 1986, Slaughter High. 1987, Faceless. 1988, Howl of the Devil. 1989, The Black Cat. 1993, Night Owl. 1994, To Die For. 1996, Domestic Strangers. 
2002, Blood Craving. 2003, Flesh for the Beast. 2006, The Absence of Light. 2012, Aqua Tales and El Dorado. 2015, Vampires with a Y and Crying Wolf 3D. Then interestingly, in 2016, Stellar Quasar in the Scrolls of Dedalia. She played Amane. Amane, I can't read that. 2017, Cute Little Buggers. 2019, House of the Gorgon. 2020, The Haunting of Margam Castle. And finally, in 2023, she'll appear in the pocket film of Superstitions as the High Priestess. She's also noted for short films that I'm not going to go into because you've never heard of them. But she was also a singer in uh, 1967. She sang a song called Tar and Cement. Don't ask me. Then she, with that husband we will not name, she sang several songs uh, such as Come Softly to Me, You Got It, and The Rhythm of the Rain, and Love Songs. Finally, she worked with Gary Newman, who you know from the songs Here in My Car, I Can Lock All My Door. Anyway, she did a song called Pump Me Up. I don't know it. I'm sure it's wonderful. It's uh, a very brief snapshot of the wonder that is Carolyn Monroe. I thank you for listening. I hope you were as interested as I tried to uh, make you be, <laughs> because I'm a real, real diehard for Carolyn Monroe. You can keep your Cassandra Petersons and your uh, what-have-yous. I'm, I'm a Carolyn Monroe fan till I die. And again, she's... Uh, She's just the best. If you get a chance, uh, watch her films. I'm sure you'll, you will enjoy them. Directory to science fiction fan clubs. We're going to go over some fan clubs that are listed. I think it's so unique that before the internet, this is how fans got together, either through correspondence or meeting in people's homes. So let's talk about some of these options. American Hobbit Association Club for Tolkien Enthusiasts Prints a 16-page newsletter eight times a year Holds meetings in Chicago Never heard of it before, but I would have loved to have joined that The American Tolkien Society Publishes Minas Tirith, Evening Star, each month Also, a fan club for The Prisoner in the Bay Area International Wizard of Oz Club in Escanaba, Michigan, uh, founded in 1957. The club holds meetings peri periodically in California, Michigan, and New Jersey, with an annual meeting in Castle Park, Michigan. That's an element of fandom I never hear about today. No, there, there are still fans of the movie, but you don't really hear about fan clubs for it. Doctor Who Information Network out of Petersboro, Ontario. The ElfQuest Fan Club. Pullman, Washington for fans of Winnie Pinney's comic book series. Now this is something that still is in effect. The Mythopedic Society it was founded in 1967 to promote discussion and papers on works of fantasy. Southern Fandom Confederation. Uh, it's from Mead Frierson, Illinois publishes newsletters and a periodically updated directory for fans in 11 southern states. Dues are $3 per year. Okay, I find that kind of funny. It's based in Illinois, but it's called the Southern Fan Federation. Yeah, so you got know. someone in the Midwest that has, has a federation for people in the South. 11 southern states? What am I missing out of this? 
Maybe someone started it and then moved it to Illinois. That's probably it. And then it breaks it down. All the local... Uh, I see what they're saying. Okay, so they count Arizona as the south. They don't call that southwest. So they're doing like geographically anything on the bottom half of the United States. Because there's a Birmingham, Alabama, Alabama Science Fiction Club. Phoenix, Arizona Speculative Fiction Society. There's one in Tucson, Arizona. They count San Diego as the South, so the San Diego Science Fiction Club. Garden Grove, Jedi Knights of Orange County. The Count Dracula Society in Los Angeles. Now listed under Birmingham, Alabama for the Birmingham Science Fiction Club, they meet at Homewood Public Library in Oxmoor Road, Homewood, Alabama on the second Saturday of each month. Founded in 1978, the BSFC has about 30 members and publishes Anvil, a bi-monthly newsletter. Not to be associated with the Anvil that is a Star Trek newsletter. The the chapter of Starfleet International that, that's in Birmingham now has, has a newsletter called the Anvil. Yeah. I don't think that there's a connection there. Well, it's it's probably because that that is where they have that Hephaestus statue. That's right. So so they they get anvil from that. Denver also has the International Brotherhood of Jedi Knights, Connecticut, New Haven. Now I did hear about this, but let me tell you something. There's no possible way my parents were going to bring me downtown New Haven. I lived a town away. I lived in Hamden to hang out with a bunch of adults. They're not going <laughs> to, we're like, ah, no, no, it's just not going to happen. But I did hear about the New Haven Science Fiction and Fantasy Association. It was on Whitney Avenue. Looks like an apartment number, A1, New Haven, Connecticut. The group meets every other Thursday in members' homes. The chief activity of NHSSFA is informal discussions of science fiction, fantasy, and many unrelated topics together with the consumption of congenial substances and beverages. <laughs> well, that sounds neat. It yeah. does sound neat, yeah. The club's annual dues, $15 a year. So it's close to $45 a year to meet in someone's home. That's a little bit pricey. You know, that would be like yeah. today's money. I wonder if that was or, to pay for food. I wonder if, if, if they provided the food for people. Probably, so. yeah. How about this one? Georgia, Atlanta. Atlanta Science Fiction Club. Contact Cliff Biggers. We know Cliff Biggers. He's a regular Dragon Con. He is the comic book store owner of Dr. No's Comics and also the producer of the Comic Shop News. Amazing. Meets generally on the third Saturday of the month at Peachtree Bank Community Room. Publishes an excellent newsine, Antares. Membership, $12 a year. Yeah, that sounds neat. Um, I mean, I didn't know about it back then. I didn't live in Atlanta back then. I was in South Georgia. But that might be the same club that um, the Dixie Trek came out of, or Atlanta Fantasy Fair, one of those cons. The Alternative Factor meets third Sunday of the month in members' homes. Dues are $12 a year and include a newsletter. Sci-Fi, but it's spelled P-S-I-P-H-I. Contact Thomas Anthony Gray, the Emory University Science Fiction and Fantasy Club. Send self-addressed stamped envelope for meeting information. Okay. How about this one in Atlanta? 
Barony of South Downs, Society for Creative Anachronism Chapter. Contact Rhonda Johnson. Meets every Wednesday at Georgia Hill Community Center. Dance class at 7.30, meetings at 8. They have a dance class and then meetings, and it's a sci-fi club? Medieval Costumes Encouraged. Medieval, okay. Yeah. Okay, in Norcross. Niat Hold, Anne McCaffrey's Fan Club. Meetings in members' homes as scheduled. Dues of $10 a year. Entitled 1 to local and regional memberships and subscription to monthly club zine. How about Warner Robins? You know Warner Robins. I lived there when I was very young, yes. Okay. Uh, Warner Robins Sci-Fi Club. Contact Ann Hester. Doesn't give you any ideas about where it meets or anything. Atlanta Cartoon Comics and Fantasy Organization. Contact David Moss. If you're a fan of cartoons, that's the one to join. Here's one for Tolkien fans. The Rangers of Ithilien. Contact Grat Coral. Affiliated with Tolkien Fellowships, this club meets the second Saturday of the month at Coral's home. Dues are $5 annual or $0.50 per meeting. The club publishes the Elven Journal. I mean, this is just pages and pages and pages of, of listings. I wish I knew about this a little later. I was too young at this. My parents, if I knew about, let's say I had this issue, my parents would never allow me to go to any of these things. Because I was only nine at the time of this publication. But if I knew about these things when I got older, I was at that time where I was, the internet just wasn't a thing until I became an adult. And even then, it was at the earlier stages of the internet, and I didn't, this to me is just amazing that there's pages and pages and pages of listings of fandom. What does this tell us about fandom during this time period? It was huge. So there, there were all these uh, fan clubs of of different, you know, different shows, different, um, different fandoms, and that, that's what impresses me the most is the variety. Yeah, there's so much there. Yeah, so it seems like back then they had more people going to people's homes. How about this one? New England Science Fiction Association. NESFA meets every month commonly on the second Sunday. There is a complex system of membership grades, only the highest of which run club business. Subscribing membership, the most inexpensive, entitles one to receive club's excellent newsletter, entitled Instant Message, and larger fanzine, Proper Boxtonian. Founded October of 1967 on remnants of the Boston Science Fiction Society. Uh, the, the, this was throws me off is the complex system. That Well, I mean, I think it, that must be a huge club in order to have like a complex system of people deciding who can be leaders. So it, it must have been a big club. And, and they meet at MIT. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you want to like the, like the smartest of the smartest science fiction fans are joining this club, right? Oh, okay. Cam- Cambridge, so then, Harvard so, area, right? So maybe it wasn't big. Maybe they just made it complicated on purpose <laughs> then. Yeah. New York Science Fiction Society. Listen to this one. Meetings are held monthly in members' homes, except in the month of the club-sponsored convention, Lunacon and of the month of summer picnic and Christmas party. New members are added to the club by majority vote. Meetings are open to guests by invitation of any member subject to space limitations. 
Wow, one of those exclusive clubs? <laughs> this is a random entry. Listen to this. Cincinnati Fantasy Club has been around for years, but the death of its founder and contact person in 1981 leaves me uncertain how to find them. Well, why would you send an entry and, and, and write that in there? I guess someone is looking for the club now or something. Here's a name that I recognize somehow. Don and Sheila DeMassa run the Rhode Island Science Fiction Club. They meet second and fourth Saturday, founded in 1973. Nashville Science Fiction Club. Contact Ken Moore. Meets at the Cumberland Museum and Science Center the first Thursday of each month. Founded in 1970. Membership over 100. Dues are $2.50 per month. Hosts the annual KublaCon convention. Yeah, we know about that, Con. Chattanooga Science Fiction Club. In the States, uh, in Cleveland, Tennessee, meets monthly. Mid-South Fantasy Association meets monthly. Now, Mid-South Con is still a con that goes on. Yeah, and, and we met we met some of the people from that club, right? They yeah, they're still uh working staff at the con. I think years ago people had more of a desire to meet together to talk about their fandom because there really was nothing mainstream. With the exception of Star Trek and Star Wars, even then I don't think people could go to I, I mean I was a kid at the time, so I don't think people could go to work and have deep discussions about their fandom. Whereas now the outlet seems to be, it's, you could go to any store, Target, Walmart, and you're going to find things in in the geek world, clothing, hats, what have you. Uh, it, it still was a subgenre years ago, and but true fans had a desire to talk and to meet together. I think modern day we've lost some of that to a degree. Yeah, it w back then it was rare to to be able to meet with other fans. So so while you had all those fan clubs that were thriving because people sort of in in a sense met underground underground and yeah, so and now but now um sci-fi is more mainstream so it's not as rare to meet people and plus you can talk about it more online now. Yeah, I think that that's most people's outlet is just online. But it just reinforces how important Starlog was to genre culture. Because it wasn't just reporting on celebrities. It wasn't just giving us news. It was actually connecting people. That's what makes sci-fi come alive, and even more so. 1982, an amazing gear in comics with my main man, Jamie. My, 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 my. All right, let me ask you this, Jamie. When you were collecting comics in yeah. 1982, do you remember where you were primarily buying your comic books? Newsstands. Newsstands or convenience stores. The, yeah, there's no question. I remember specifically because my grandfather lived in Woodbridge, Connecticut. and We would go on Fridays. He'd pick me up after school. And then we'd go to the Amity newsstand in the Amity Shopping Plaza and pick up something from McCrory's, toy or something. And we'd go to the newsstand and i have such vivid memories of picking up so many comics this year at the amity newsstand i didn't even know comic book stores existed at the time i had no clue either i'd read i knew they existed but i also figured they were in places like the northeast or 
out west, and it just was out of touch for me. All right, so growing up in Nashville, do you remember what the circumstances were of buying comics? Did you go by yourself? Did your parents bring you? No, my parents had to bring me. One of the fondest memories for me is picking up Fury of Firestorm number one. I never heard of the character before, but I saw this guy's head was on fire, and I already liked Ghost Rider, and his head was on fire, so I was like, I have got to check this guy out. And I ended up continuing with the series, because it wasn't just about a guy with his head on fire. I love the idea that there was a mentor that only he could hear, and that would guide him. I like the artwork, Pat Broderick. It was it was an exciting series. No, I agree. I mean, it was... I mean, it was a, a big number one, and the second one would be the saga of Swamp Thing started in 1982, and that kicks off a whole new run. At, but at that time, I was not reading Swamp Thing, and even as an adult, when I look back and re- reread those issues, they are not that good because it, most people consider the start of Swamp Thing at issue number 20 once Alan Moore picks up. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, everything's going to pale in comparison to Alan Moore's writing. But there had some, there were some decent storylines before then. But it was 1982 was also crucial because the Saga Swamp Thing coincided with the release of the movie that year. We're seeing that they they had to keep the title going for the sake of some sort of cross promotion. They do it every every single. I mean, that's just what the comic book companies do. Is that if there's going to be a movie released that year, there's going to be a start. There's going to be a re- release of a new publication, or they're somehow going to weave the character into making them an integral part of of a series or crossover series. Also, at this time, I was a big Teen Titans fan. I remember getting this miniseries by Marv Wolfman, George Perez, that was the origin of different titans i remember being so excited looking at that that first cover with cyborg on it cyborg breaking chains i just like this is so amazing i remember bringing it to school i remember getting excited when the raven and starfire issues came out i mean it was just teen titans were at an all-time high during this era no seriously i mean it was it was it was it was a big deal they were gaining they were definitely gaining in popularity they and the x-men we're definitely. They were always like the the top two of that early eighties oh, era. Oh yeah, for Sales. sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's they were both you know teenagers, which obviously uh, was geared towards the a younger audience. That Tara Tara it. made her first appearance in nineteen eighty two. She did. It was a rocky appearance, but she made it. Also, in Teen Titans number sixteen, it included an insert previewing Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. And by the time Captain Carrot came out, number one, I jumped on that, and I loved it. 1982 was also the last year that anyone gave a flying F about Captain Carrot. You did. You had look, a bunch of Captain Carrots. I did. I, look, I, I cared, but trust me, once 1983 rolled around, that was last year's news. Okay, here's here's the funny story. So, Jamie and I used to work together years ago, and, sure. and look, I mean... The restaurant that we worked at was huge. It was just massive. It had three floors. You could go there for a week and not see people that that you worked with just because sure. it was so massive. And so I I knew who you were, but I didn't really know you. And something came up about Alec Holland, and you just said to me, you're like, Alec Holland, are you a Swamp Thing fan? I was like, what? Man, this guy knows about Swamp I was like, ah, that's – 
that's that's for an average person that's deep, but for a comic nerd that's not that deep. And I remember <laughs> he used it because you said I I collect comics too. I was like, really? I said, what kind of comics did you like as a kid? And you're just rolling off like all kinds of things, so like Daredevil, like X Men. And then I said, oh yeah, what about Captain Carrot? And you said, oh yeah, I got a bunch of Captain Carrots. And I that's did. at the point I where did. I knew I was like. Oh my God! This guy's like me. This he, he could be my best friend ever. Like, I did. I, I did like I it. Knew nobody I, that liked Captain. I, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, the Captain. Yeah, in the zoo crew. It's one of those things. How did they not make a, an animated series and a line of action figures out of this? It is perfect. I mean, for, yeah. I mean, if that it, could have been, could have been the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles of the eighties. It's true, but it's just it, comics. It was just comic and well, actually, comic properties back in the 80s were just in a different place you had to be a blockbuster for people to think yeah, about yeah. touching it you know especially the early 80s the only thing i'd known at that point were hulk spider-man wonder woman superman i yeah. mean pretty much the big guns even batman i mean batman had a tv series and had animated series comic wise it was not a big hit it was low in sales not that was it was mediocre in sales it was i mean teen titans was Blowing Batman out of the water in sales in 1980. It, Batman, Batman was not a big deal until year one and Killing Joke. Yeah, 86, when, when the crisis. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, we're talking a lot about um, Alan Moore. Marvel Man was introduced. The British version of in, Miracle Man. In, in Warrior Number 1 and David Lloyd's V for Vendetta. In Warrior Number One, you had that. Yeah. I remember. I remember when I came over your house and I saw some of your comics that you had. I couldn't believe you had that. I mean, Alan Moore in the early '80s was absolutely untouchable as a writer. I mean, that's why he's considered to be one of the premier writers of all time. His 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 writing from nineteen probably from nineteen eighty two through nineteen ninety are just or nineteen eighty nine are. I mean, it'll, it, it'll it's. It'll be immortalized. It'll it stands for it'll stand forever. Another big gun in the early eighties was Frank Miller, and he had his epic Daredevil run. True, nineteen eighty two was when Elektra died, and that's that's a that's an iconic issue. If no, what's weird? I am I ended up getting what if Elektra hadn't died? That came out that year, and I never even read the other Daredevil comics. I just looked at that cover at the newsstand. I was like, I. I like this, and it has two stories in it. It also had something about Yellow Jacket in there. Anytime you had two stories, because we were of the era, believe it or not, kids actually read comics back then. Whereas I hear of people who don't read comics, they just collect them. I just put there, you can talk to my hand, because I, I don't want to talk to you. I want nothing to do with you. And, and Frank Miller handled the duties of What If as well, the alternative. But that Electra Saga was incredible. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it definitely set the basis of of uh, storylines to come. Keeping the theme with Frank Miller, Wolverine miniseries, huge. I mean, that's that that that's huge. I mean, every if you followed comics in 1982, you know exactly that cover is epic. Uh, absolutely, for sure, absolutely. Like, it, it's kind of funny because of that same era, you have Wolverine with his finger saying "Come on, this way," and then Daredevil. With the gun saying "No more, Mister Nice Guy." I mean, this was the rise of the anti-hero. Yeah, I mean, it's Wolverine was. That shows you how popular he was gaining. Is that he gets his own limited, limited series, which was kind of new for that time because 
How often did you know that somebody spun spun off from a regular series and had their own series? I mean, trust me, this started a terrible trend that was about to follow the rest of the eighties. It's funny you say that. Ice 19- Man got his own. <laughs> he got his own series. The um the first mini series that's credited for Marvel is Contest of Champions. I remember distinctly getting that from the Amity newsstand because I looked at the cover and I went. Look at all these superheroes. What is this? And it sucked. Here's the story behind it. Yeah. That was supposed uh, that was a shelved project for the Olympics earlier on. Um, Marvel was working with the Olympics and so they created all these different international characters. Right. Oh, so, so you had someone from Ireland, someone from Israel. So I'm just they were creating there were so many first appearances in Contest of Champions number one. Because it was supposed to be a comic series to tie in with the Olympics. Well, the Olympics got canceled. So they said, let's just rebrand it. Let's just tweak it. And Contest of Champions came to be. But I'll tell you what, got that when it first came out. Just because I, I never saw a comic book with so many superheroes on it before. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I totally agree. We're, t- we're still talking especially about the, the massiveness of X-Men and Teen Titans. I did not get this when it came out. Because I I didn't knew it was available. Like when you when you are only going to newsstands and convenience stores, you're limited to what they have. You know, whereas comic book stores have everything. Oh, yeah. There was a Teen Titans X Men crossover. Holy cow! I remember it. I, I didn't have it, but I, I definitely remember being got it. Got that. it later as a as a teenage. You know, when I started really really getting into going to the comic stores and everything, but. I you, ne- you want to talk about the ti- – these are two titans of comics. Oh, absolutely. They were – yeah, I mean they were you know, maximizing the popularity of both teams. But again, most of, most of those crossovers, the story is always awful. All right, here's something that was – it actually – it was newsworthy. The first time a comic book was ever advertised on television, G.I. Joe number one. Oh, I mean, this definitely was gigantic in, in, <laughs> yeah. in, in 1982 and, and would set the trend. I mean, G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe number one, the comic was, the comic was huge. I mean, the toys, the toys were probably the most, well, some of the most popular toys of the 80s, but easily. And, and it's because of you had the comic book. This is, this predates the, 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 the animated show. series. This predates it. Right. But it's like, Oh my God! This is amazing. This, I mean, the commercials really awesome. This sold over two hundred thousand copies. It was outselling X Men. It was outselling Superman. It was. It was just. It was a massive hit. Well, it also helped that it was an interesting story as well. Yeah. Like it was actually, it was well written, and the art was pretty good too. Larry Hama, ex military, he understood the dynamics of. We're going to make a military comic, but add some fun elements to it. It was a great balance. Yeah. And never, you know, they had catchy names like Grunt, <laughs> Flint, Snake Eyes. 1982, crossover comic book with Creepshow the movie, Bernie Writes in Art. I remember this kid, my brother's class, Byron Shakespeare had it. I remember standing in the lunch line looking at it, and it was the, uh, Page where the creature from the crate was biting this lady's face. I remember a teacher being appalled by me looking at that. I remember – I don't remember the comic. I do remember the movie though. And this is the era where comic book companies were starting to tailor their content to comic book stores, not having things in in newsstands, what we call the direct market. 
and Camelot 3000 this year. It's recognized as the first maxi series. Artwork by Brian Boland. Wow, that's something that once I found out about Brian Boland's art and I started trying to find everything he did, another just page after page of absolute gorgeousness. Yeah, I remember the Camelot 3000. I didn't collect it, but I, I yeah, the maxi series started coming out and later it's it's funny how there are so many crossovers with different genres, not only with movies, not only with toys, but it was in 1982 that DC teamed up with Atari and started inserting little comic books in Atari cartridges. So if you got Defender, Berserk, Star Raiders, Phoenix, or Galaxian, you got a little comic book with it. I vaguely remember that. I think there was one for Yar's Revenge later. It wasn't 1982, but like 1983 or four, and it was not. It was like a team. Like they, they desperately wanted uh, to make. Yeah, I, I, I did like the premise. I liked it as a kid. Again, as an adult, I don't like it as much. It's more of a. I have it in the collection for nostalgia value. But to get a comic book with a video game, I was happy. Yeah, it's just promotional literature. I mean, that's all it is. Just a different form of it. All right, here's – they had the Eagle Awards presented in 1983. So these are the awards for comics that came out in 1982. Best Story was awarded to V for Vendetta by Alan Moore and David Lloyd. No surprise. Best New Book, Teen Titans by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. No surprise. Best Comic Writer, Alan Moore. No surprise. Here's one that you might be surprised with. Favorite artist, Bill Sienkiewicz. That hurts my brain at the thought of that. This guy is, his art is, yeah, just. I remember one time he said, does he draw with his left foot? <laughs> it's about, yes, yes, yes. I mean, he's, it's, it's, all, it's almost like a triple paralysis victim. Best UK title, Warrior. There's no question about that. I mean, they're just laying the groundwork. I mean, the the British invasion was coming was soon with him, Neil Gaiman. Yeah, it was coming soon. It was still in Britain. A favorite UK artist, Brian Boland. No question. I mean, when they came yeah. to America, I was all and and I didn't even know there there was a point a couple a couple years, not 1982, but once we got to about 1985, I was obsessed. 84, 85, anything that was coming out of Britain, I was like. I like all the British bands, New Wave of British Heavy Metal. I wanted all the artists, all the writers, like everything British. That This British wave was coming to American pop culture soon. Well, yeah. I mean, it's they were, yeah, they, it, it was just a fresh look at everything, and the creativity was incredible. I mean, I'm not saying comics had grown – well, no, comics had grown a little stale. You think about the British writers mm-hmm. or like – Chris Claremont? Uh, no, he was born in he was born he was born, he, in, he was born in London. Yeah, he was born in London, but he he grew up in America though. Yeah, well, I mean, but he's still British when you're born in another country. I consider myself a Southern boy. <laughs> I'm I'm deep Southern boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Connecticut Fried Chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, CFC. I, I, yeah, I remember. It's pretty popular. Yeah, remember that year? Also, they had a. First appearance of the New Mutants, which was huge because... And that was through graphic novels, which were a brand new thing then. I mean, that they again, to me... So I never saw it. I never had it. I didn't have access to a comic book store. No, you didn't get it. Don't, the places I saw it were in places like Walden Books or like a bookstore in the mall. They had... Oh, they sold oh. that. 
That's where I saw the death of Captain Marvel for the first time, and it was you had it. I remember in your collection, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's, it was it was it was extremely well written, and yeah. and after that, the second issue of that was when God loved or was it God, God loves, loves man, man kills. kills. Yeah. yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I mean it introduces William Stryker. Mm-hmm. Stryker. When I say things like you had it, it's because Jamie sold. We got together and we sold thousands and thousands and thousands of his comics. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that I realized that, oh, my, this is just in- insane trying to go through all this stuff and, and organize it to sell. Selling comics is not an easy task. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. That was – it was crazy. <laughs> But but because we were reading them while we were selling them, yeah. that was the problem. Is we couldn't like we get caught up in something and just sit there and start reading and talking about it. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. Yeah, and it was that year was also the same time that the Spider-Man iconic storyline, nothing can stop the ju- or nothing can stop the Juggernaut came out, mm-hmm. and which was huge. I mean, Spider-Man popularity just kept getting. Increasing, increasing, increasing. If that if that's even popular, Roger Stern, I believe that year or the year before, started writing Spider Man, and that's when he he was instrumental with storylines such as this. Then after that, they had a storyline that involved the tarantula, and then after that, that's when the hobgoblin was introduced. Oh, when we get to that era of the hobgoblin, you want to talk about fervor? I mean, everyone was talking about that. We're talking about 1982, though. We're we're building up to that. True. Spoiler alert: the uh, that year was also the same year that had the Great Darkness Saga, which was in 290 through 294. Which the Legion of Superheroes that was huge. Where Dark Side Dark Side was uh, int- he wasn't introduced, but he was introduced into that into that era, and that was kind of cool because basically his following they recruit daxamites which is basically like an analog or like very comparative to krypton and it's going to be like what would happen if a planet full of super supermen tried to take over the galaxy it was kind of an interesting take it was it was it was pretty cool that year was also the year that we saw the monitor for the first time which would be a big deal in 1986 for the crisis Right, yeah, the monitor, yeah, because you're gonna you start seeing him, which you'll start seeing him in in issues or different titles for this year and the next year and the year after that show show up in like in the shadows and as a, as a foreshadowing of the crisis of infinite earth that's coming. In closing, we could say, 1982 was an awesome year in comic books. For real, man, man. She's been kidnapped by Cobra. We have no alternative. Call in G.I. Joe. We'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. He never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe. Who's leader of the Joe team? Hawk. He's America's best. He's in control. He's the man Good who's luck, Joe. Oh, yeah. He loses his name. Legend of G.I. Joe. The legend of G.I. Joe. You from Marvel Comics. Starlog Magazine, issue number 58. Cover date, May 1982. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Atari keeps them coming. 
Last January, at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Atari introduced a new home system. Atari Video System X, due out in the second half of this year, has more power and memory potential than its predecessor introduced in 1977. A combination of sophisticated microprocessors allows for a wide range of sound. One chip will eventually give it the ability to reproduce voice and speech and advanced graphic capabilities. For instance, the attackers of space invaders can do more than flap their wing shields as they descend. They rotate in 24-stage animation. This is absolutely amazing news. When the Atari 5200 came out, it was mind-blowing, especially since it had a Pac-Man that actually looked like Pac-Man in the arcade. Obi-Wan returns in other Jedi news. After reading the top-secret script of Revenge of the Jedi, Alec Guinness has agreed to reprise the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi in the final segment of the second Star Wars trilogy. According to producer Howard Kazanjian, Kenobi will appear in the flesh. Our dead is a different sort of thing, he told Variety. Really curious news that Ben Kenobi would be back even we know that, that he died. But we saw his ghost in The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, so, I mean, to read it back then in Starlog, it's like, oh, wow, they're doing that. <laughs> also, a rumor is circulating that young counterparts to Han Solo, Princess Leia, and Luke Skywalker may make an appearance. Young counterparts. I mean, that 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 is a rumor that did not come to the fore. Yeah, that would have been interesting to see. But, yeah, it is fun to go back and read this and see all the all the ideas they had back then. Buck for Summer Syndication Fair As went Galactica, so goes Buck Rogers. Into that world where canceled shows appear almost magically in reruns on television throughout the country, the never-say-die world of syndication. This is what I loved about this era. There are so many shows and reruns that I loved watching. Yeah, the reruns were great. It was few. That that's one that did not get the heavy reruns as others did. Well, they didn't have they enough episodes. They didn't really. have enough episodes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, we didn't have a VCR, so we relied on reruns immensely. Right, and we didn't have streaming back then. So yeah, it it was great to watch all the reruns on TV. Final word on greatest American hero lawsuit. Unwilling to take no for an answer. DC Comics and Warner Brothers filed an appeal last spring after a district court judge allowed ABC's Greatest American Hero to appear despite claims that the character infringed on the Superman copyright. District Court Judge Constance Baker Motley handed down a ruling earlier this year. Okay, DC has a reputation of going crazy with lawsuits with infringing copyright on Superman. We know they've done it in the past with Captain Marvel. We know a Shazam. But, I mean, they pretty much have the idea of anyone who flies and has a cape is a ripoff of Superman. Yeah, uh, I didn't really see how Greatest American Hero was like Superman. At the time of the original suit, a judge viewed Warner Brothers' first Superman film and the two-hour pilot episode of Greatest American Hero and determined that no major similarity existed and allowed ABC to air the show. I mean, come on, really? 
if you took away every character that had a cape and flew, you'd wipe out so many superheroes. So I'm glad that this judgment made a precedent going forward, which they already did with Captain Marvel. Just ease up, DC. <laughs> there could be other superheroes out there. Yeah, it, it was a very strange thing that they did that. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and listeners of all ages, this is Flynn Hendricks, the one-man enterprise, professional wrestling extraordinaire, actor, podcast host. Check out all my endeavors on Linktree slash the Flynn Hendricks, and I am back to talk to you about the crazy world of professional wrestling in 1982. And this time, we're going to start off with some notable wrestling shows. On June 4th, World Class Championship Wrestling hosted the Fritz Von Erich Retirement Show in Irving, Texas. This is where Fritz Von Erich defeated King Kong Bundy in a Falls Count Anywhere match in his retirement. Meanwhile, on June 4th, New Japan Pro Wrestling also hosted the G1 Climax, which was won by Andre the Giant, who defeated Killer Khan in the finals on June 4th. And then, on August 15th, World Class Championship Wrestling hosted the Wrestling Star Wars in Fort Worth, Texas. There, Ric Flair and Kerry Von Erich wrestled to a draw at one fall apiece before being double-pinned in the final. Now, let's get on to some Observer Awards from the Wrestling Observer. The Wrestler of the Year was none other than the man himself, the Nature Boy Ric Flair. The Feud of the Year was Ted DiBiase versus the Junkyard Dog. Tag Team of the Year, Stan Hansen and Ole Anderson. The most improved wrestler, according to Dave Meltzer, was Jim Duggan. And once again, best on interviews, the man himself, Rowdy Roddy Piper. 1982 also was host to some notable birthdays, like Chris Sabin, Epico Cologne, and Jack Swagger, now known as Jake Hager, Natalia Neidhart, Damian Sandow, Tony Khan, and Ted DiBiase Jr. We also got the debuts of Sherry Martell, Tracy Smothers, Al Snow, Steve Williams, Arn Anderson, Road Warrior Animal, and George South. It also, to round us out, saw the retirements of Buddy Rogers, the original Nature Boy, Fritz von Erich, who we mentioned earlier, Killer Carl Cox, and Carl Gotch. And that's what was going on in 1982 in the world of professional wrestling. And I know you hear me. One other thing. I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Max found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody, nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. Nothing else I can do but just wait. This is Dr. Durant, also known as Rich Hurley, helicopter pilot, U.S. Outpost number 31. With me is Lou Melagrana. Also with us, as the last survivor of Outpost 31, is someone who won't take any of your voodoo bullshit, Max Overnighter. Talk about uh, John Carpenter's The thing and thus the intro and we're going to talk about it uh in the vein of how it was in starlog magazine number 58 from may of 1982 and uh, this article focused mostly on screenwriter bill lancaster and his contribution to the movie and um a couple things just wanted to bring up you know some basics on the movie the thing both the 1951 version and the uh and this one kind of kind of based on the 1938 john w campbell's book who goes there uh bill lancaster screenwriter was coming to this one right off of the bad news bears and uh as with a lot of these other movies that we talk about uh when they by the time they come out they've been kicked around from studio to studio and different um 
different people talking about it. So this one been kicked around a little bit from 1977. And uh, when they first approached uh, Mr. Lancaster to do this, he well, hadn't read the book and hadn't, you know, they, they brought him in and he screened the movie, the original, the 151, and he didn't want to remake it. So he thought it was a great movie the way it was. And then by 1979, when John Carpenter was involved, he came in and um, they kind of knocked around some ideas that they wanted to, to not necessarily remake the original 1951 movie. And they wanted to stick maybe a little bit closer to the, uh, the, the book and do some things just a little bit, a little bit different. And the, this article talks about how Lancaster and Carpenter seem to get along really well. And uh, that uh, despite the fact that he had, you know, that uh, Lancaster had not been known for doing horror genre, um, but he was a big fan. Uh, little known fact, uh, this Bill Lancaster we're talking to was the son of actor Burt Lancaster. We might know that guy's name from stuff. And, um, you know, of course, you know, the movie, The Effects. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> he's a little famous. He might have seen his face somewhere. Burt Lancaster left. <laughs> yes. The fact that Rich knows that cracks me up. <laughs> You know, and, and you know, it's something else I think that uh, Rich should probably identify with uh, really good. And I think you probably saw it in the article that, uh, you know, Bill Lancaster was a big fan of the old, you know, black and white, cheesy, campy horror movies. And he mentioned oh, yeah. specifically the Vincent Price movies. The Vincent yes, Price. I know. Oh, I like that. He along with the. Good evening. It's Vincent Price. Why wasn't I in the thing? The thing. <laughs> Max, did you also bring up the fact that uh, he had curly blonde hair? Did you did you uh, talk one of another? You know, I, I <laughs> well, I I thought that I would lead off with the Vincent Price thing to give him some <laughs> some propers first, and yeah, uh, he did talk terrifying. about the yeah creature of the Black Lagoon and some of those yes. you know some of those other drive-in and John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors, and the thing is one of my favorite of his films. And I love reading these old articles, like hearing about the the process that went into it, like you said, Max, like how long it was in development in Hollywood back in the day. And that was a big thing. Like remakes are, are nothing new. They've always been trying to remake films. Even back in the 70s and 80s, they were trying to remake a lot of these old 50s and 60s and 40s horror movies down the line. And um, I just find it amazing that, yeah, I, I didn't know that, that the guy that wrote this was actually Burt Lancaster's son. And what a fan of genre films he was, along with John Carpenter. John Carpenter was a huge Howard Hawks fan. Howard Hawks, you know, Christian Nyby directed the original thing, but a lot of people say that it was Howard Hawks that sort of ghost directed it. Howard Hawks produced it because it has all the typical Howard Hawks uh, tropes in there. And, like what? Um, Give us some examples. Well, just that... the, the tough, quick-talking guys, and, you know, it's a real man's man movie, and... And Howard Hawks was big on having people. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they 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 did talk about you know uh, you know the, kind of that push towards maybe the Humphrey Bogart kind of a right kind of and a Howard character. Hawks directed that, like, those bogey films. And correct. He directed a lot of the old westerns. Right. Like uh, I think now I always get the two of them confused, but I think it's Rio Bravo. Is that the Macho one with, Man? Uh, is that what you're trying to say, Rich? Macho John, John Man. John Wayne and uh, Dean Martin and uh, 
and and Ricky Nelson's kid there, uh, or Ozzy Nelson's kid, Ricky Nelson. That's the that's one of John Carpenter's favorite westerns, and it's it's kind okay. of take, it's like a siege picture. It takes place in one location. All the bad guys are going to come into town, and that's what the thing is. All these guys are in one location. They're trapped in an Antarctic ice station, and they're trying to figure out. You know, they they don't trust each other. There's a lot of paranoia in there, which differs from the original film. And the other thing that they took out of it that I think Burt Lan- uh, Lancaster's uh, mentions in the article is it's he's like he's his his line in there is there's there's no broads in this movie it's a man's film like and <laughs> right that, that's what one well, of I the guess things I really be a man there's no broads in the film be a man right that's right so so what happened between 1951 and 1982 is that men learned how to make their own coffee I think that's what it boiled down to because if you watch any of those any of those old movies, you know, like 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 the thing from the the original thing, and some of those old movies. I mean, they got these these broads that want to get be uh, these females, broads, women, broads. chicks, same skirts that want to be part of the boys. Audio's been banned. Audio's been banned. Max has stepped over right? the line. So what happens is they they all want to get you know into this. All boys clubs, what you know, for for the most part, and they want to demand, and they end up making coffee. That's it's just hilarious to me. My wife and I crack up every time we watch these movies. But she goes like, "Why did they bring her along? You know, well, somebody's got to make coffee, wash dishes, and make sandwiches and stuff." All right, Jeez. you're getting a dangerous area. You're dangerous area. And how are you? How are you going to have? All a, the how are you gonna get listeners, that? Max is a really nice guy. He treats his. I'm a really nice guy. He's just that's my wife. Back in time for a little bit. No, but you know, but if you, but when you, when you look at that, and and now that you've heard me say that, the next time you watch one of these movies, you're gonna go, damn, that's exactly what's going on. He's making coffee. It's funny you mentioned that because this is just coming up just from this. But Howard Hawks, one of his tropes was he always had very tough talking women in his movies that were much like the guys. He's got Lauren Bacall and the big sleep. The woman, in, right. there's a woman in the original thing that, that keeps, you know, keeps up with the guy. She's not like, I'm just making coffee and I'm a pretty face. She's and and so it's kind of funny that the reverse version of the thing, when they, they take it around, it's just a strictly a man's picture of, you know, which I, what I always kind of liked about the movie is, is like the actors in it are all men. It's not like, teenagers or, or pretty boys and stuff like that it's all there's no curly really? haired men there's no curly yeah. haired men in any of those yeah right. there's so many and there's no love story in that movie there's you know no yeah story. right and Except i think he mentions horror, that in there but... he, he mentions that in the article he goes Correct. i don't have time for a love story we, we need to get to the the meat of the story and we don't want yeah. these sort of shoehorned in love scenes when you know that, that some <laughs> pictures want in these movies right and that's and that's what happens with so many movies is they do get that, you know, I mean, we saw it in, you know, tons of those old 50s, 50s movies, uh, you know, uh, superhero movies, you know, they, they, they throw that in there and, you know, it doesn't really add to the story too much. And so you take it out and the approach that they took was a little bit different right from the beginning because it starts off with the dog running. You know, you don't yeah. know that there's been you know, they don't, they don't say it isn't like, Hey, there's, you know, we're watching something crash into the ice over here. Let's go check it out. Um, so it, that, that part of it, you know, evolves and doesn't explode until the middle of the movie. And you start 
you know, then that's when you get into all this distrust. What's going on? Is it a sickness? Is it an ill? You know, and then of course, when the revelation of this transformation into alien, and you can never tell who's who. You know, I think it's. I think it was a great way of, of portraying that movie. Yeah, it, it's very much along the lines of Invasion of the Body Snatchers because the thing can take over right. your body, and. Um... And make you, you know, you don't know who's who and you get paranoid and you're worried about that stuff. The other thing is that mm-hmm. they talk about in the article is the, the special effects. And the guys that were involved in the special effects are Rob yes. Bottin, who, who did The Howling, which is one of my favorite werewolf movies. Oh, yeah. And Mike Plug, who helped design the creatures. Mike Plug, if you guys are comic book fans, he drew Werewolf by Night for Marvel Comics. He drew the Ghost Rider for Marvel Comics. He helped create those characters. The Man Thing for Marvel Comics. He drew so many fantastic early Marvel horror heroes back in the early seventies. Yeah. And they, they specifically yeah. mentioned how cool his designs for the different creatures that the thing turns into yeah. in the film were, and, and and how relevant they were to the making of the picture. The special well, in addition, that uh, addition of that was. Uh, Roy Arbogast, who did the mechanicals. Yeah. So, yeah, when they were talking about how, you know, it's like they these guys in the special effects, you know, they always want to throw special effects in. And um, so, you know, it's like they, they'd approach Lancaster with these ideas, and he was like, how are you going to do this? He said, watch me. You know, I mean, they'd be like, right. you know, these, no guys, these guys are like, right? hold my, these guys are like, hold my beer, hold watch my beer. this. Yeah. And, you know, they were fantastic. The, I mean, for that time, especially the special effects were ridiculously good. No CGI in that stuff. That was they still stuff. hold up. They still hold yeah, up. If you watch that up. movie, they hold up because it's it, it's it seems real. But the the sad thing about this now that we're here, looking back in retrospect, over the years the film has become a cult favorite and people love it. But back in the day, and they're talking in this article, Lancaster says, "Oh, I think this is going to be a big hit. It's a really great popcorn movie," and he's true. But sadly, a few weeks before this movie opened, another movie opened with an alien, and that alien was friggin' E.T. And he was cute, right, not scary. He was cute, and he was friendly, yeah. and he was happy, and this movie, I, I think Carpenter says it bombed because of E.T. People did not want to see it. They were terrified of it. They didn't get it, and it, it really, Carpenter was really bummed out that this movie didn't do well back at the time. Uh, yeah, and it's, I'm sure it's 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 truly did well. It sticks today, though, Rich. I mean, it's 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 a really still a really good right. film. People, oh yeah, it. I love yeah. it. It's my well, favorite. It, I prefer it shame to timing sure. like that. Important it is. Well, and it's interesting because timing is timing is everything. And you talk about ET just came out. This movie was released in, on June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. Uh, another movie that we'll, we'll be talking about in a future future broadcast. Uh, one of these segments is a little movie that some of you might remember by the name of the Blade Runner. Yeah. Blade Runner with Harrison Ford in that. That movie also came out on June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. So there was a lot of competition yeah. for butts in theater seats. And um, a big, you know, big, that probably big that year. Yeah. Had something yeah. to do and with it, it. It's interesting too that they mentioned now that we not I'm just thinking of it in the article. Lancaster says his next project is he was writing the screenplay screenplay for Stephen King's Firestarter and that John Carpenter at the time was also slated to direct that because this movie bombed or whatever, didn't do well. He never wound up directing Firestarter, which is kind of sad. I think he might've done a good job with it. The film didn't wind up doing so well, but you know who was in Firestarter? 
Drew Barrymore, who was in ET. She sure was. Oh, man. We got it ripped around. Yeah. I mean, it's, so, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating article. It's, it's really well done. Great movie. Uh, still holds great. up to this day. I try and watch it at least once a year. Yeah. It's always nice to go back and reread this for movies that we know. And we, you know, before we started, you know, recording this, we were talking about, you know, about the movie. And we know all of these movies. But it's interesting to see the take. Um, as, as later from these the other yeah right yeah. These and other like i said like the, and... the hope that he thought it was going to be a great movie and it wound up being a bomb but it, it did eventually turn around to become a a great movie well gentlemen there you go if you uh want i think we better move on because i'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking podcast <laughs> yeah we got more to do we got more to do. So is it time to sign off with our last? That was a quote from the movie, by the way. I'm not angry at the podcaster, you guys. It's one of my That's favorite quotes in the movie. I was like, you're tied to this fucking couch. I was going to say, that 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 being uh, Dr. Durant, please do not hold his opinions against us. It's only his opinion. <laughs> that was a quote from the movie, folks. All right, so I think it's time to sign off so you can go on to the next next uh, adventure, if we will. I am the foul mouth uh, Dr. Durant, also known as Richard <laughs> Hurley. You can find me on YouTube and on Facebook at drdurantsanctum.com. I'm Max Overnighter, and you can find me over on the Book of Faces, also known as Facebook. I'm a contributor and uh, stand-up comedian, straight man to these two knuckleheads. Uh, mostly on on the Facebook group, Mego Like, but you'll see me lurking around some of the Batman sites, some of the other toy sites. So don't stop by, say hi. I'm Lou Malagrana. We are very active in the Mego Like Facebook group, and uh, all kinds of fun stuff going on. These guys have uh, been a big part of that, and we're really excited to be able to do these podcasts for all of you. As always, we're going to close with a discussion of one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This is a very unique one. It's near the center of the magazine. The pages are solid black, but with a distinctive silver print. Now, during this time period, to see silver ink on black was really striking. It has an arch on one side of the page. It's a two-page spread. Arch on one side, arch on the other side. Within each of these arches are a list of movies. And at the top of the first page, it says, Down through the decades, one studio has consistently produced the finest motion picture classics of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And then it has a list. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Phantom of the Opera. Dracula. Frankenstein. The Mummy. The Invisible Man. Werewolf of London. Bride of Frankenstein. The Wolf Man. Creature from the Black Lagoon. This Island Earth. The Incredible Shrinking Man. The Birds. Jaws. Okay, when we hear all those movies listed, we know that it's Universal Studios. Now on the second page. And now Universal Pictures. The biggest production facility in the world presents the future classics. 
Cat People. Conan the Barbarian. E.T. the Extraterrestrial. The Thing. Videodrome. The Dark Crystal. What a striking ad this is. What do you think about this presentation? The look of it is awesome. So it's, so it, it's saying, like, starting out with the classics, which is kind of what it looks like because it, it kind of looks old black and white style visually. And, and then showing the new ones. And you look at those and it also gives like, like who the, the writer and director are for, for those, uh, movies it says are coming up. And that's pretty neat. I think it's interesting that Universal took out a two-page ad in Starlog magazine knowing that sci-fi, horror, and fantasy fans would relate to these old classics. Because I remember watching so many of them, especially on the weekends, at my grandfather's house. They would just play them on TV in repeats. It was known as a Saturday afternoon movie, Sunday afternoon movie. And to link those classics... With, at that time, modern-day classics, this was a stroke of genius. And taking that ad out in Starlog was great. All of these sci-fi fantasy movies. So, so yeah, it was, it was a great idea for Universal to do that. Like, that they actually had this, this idea to, like, show the, to show an ad that had, like, yeah, we make these movies. We're the best studio. Totally. There's a, there's a history behind this studio. And now that we look at this, I mean, the, the length of time we look at um, these movies, the oldest one, because it lists the dates, was 1923. So we're at the point now of the movies of the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s. The time that this ad came out to the time that The Bride of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, came out that sort of era it's the same length of time from now where we look back at the movies of 1982 so conan the barbarian is a bona fide classic et classic the thing classic dark crystal classic when this ad says universal presents the future classics they hit the nail on the head yeah that they actually um you know like like knew it they took a chance and put those in there I think the only one that didn't become a hit was Videodrome. And Cat People? And Cat People. Not so great. (laughs) Right, yeah. How many times has it been said? 1982 was quite possibly the best year for geek movies, at least in the top three. And this is just a sliver of it, just what was produced by Universal Studios. It, It was an awesome year, definitely. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Wait, what?
would like to blackmail me. If you don't stop your nonsense, I'm gonna fart. <laughs> Idiot. All right, what if thirty one? Okay, ready. Which one's that? Hold on. Stop it with every single what if. I did one asshole. What is this? Every single one. <laughs> 